we started a wisdom series last Sunday um, called The School of Life. And the reason why we're calling it The School of Life is we think that the, the wisdom literature found in your Old Testament, right in the middle of your Old Testament, is um, really about how we're to live wisely in this world. How do we live life wisely? And so we get this diff- almost like a symphony of different literature. So you have, you have Job, you have Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes, you have the Song of Songs. And this, these are all take, to be taken together. And so we've been, we're going to be going through them. We're in Job now, and next week we'll do uh, Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes and then Song of Songs, as you guys are reading it yourselves. And this is really teaching us how to live a good life. How do, we, how do we live a good life before God, a wise life before God? How do we flourish in our relationship, our walk, our life with God? And I want to keep thinking about the book of Job this morning. It's one of the most complex and troubling books of the Bible. And even for a lot of Bible scholars that I read and know, and theologians, it's the hardest book of the Bible and the most troubling book for them as well, and for good reason. The more that we wrestle with this book, the book of Job, as Peter Kreft said, as we looked at a quote from him last week, he says, this book is for the rational person. And a lot of it, most of us here think more rationally than anything. We work for jobs where we just we work with numbers, and the, when we put this th- number in, this algorithm in, this comes out. When you do that with Job, it doesn't work that way. When you do that with Job, something breaks in the system, and the whole system shuts down, and you're like, what is wrong with this? But as you meditate on Job and take Job in, Peter Kreft says, um, it's like iron in our blood. It like adds iron to our very blood. It's good for us. And one of the topics that comes up in the book of Job is the topic of evil. And not just the sheer existence of evil, because I think we all would agree that evil does exist. The fact that evil exists is not what Job argues. It's about personal, the personal experience or the personal presence of evil. When evil comes to your front door and you experience injustice, when that happens, what do you do? And what we find in this book in particular is that life is not a problem to be solved. Life is not a problem to be solved, but it's a a mystery that we live in. Life is more like a love story than a detective story. Um, It's a tragic comedy rather than a formula. And this might make you very uncomfortable. And the reason why it makes you uncomfortable because when the book of Job is taught, you're taught that you don't have as much control as you thought you had. And that's okay. But I want to wrestle with this book for one more week. And so I've invited... um, my friend, Dr. Gary Bashir, is to come and give us his take on the book and his application of it. So would you please welcome Dr. Gary Bashir's. Now you notice Dave did say that I throw bombs in the room. What he didn't mention is he throws bombs in the room too. And uh, well, anyway, we have a great time. Good to be here. That whole book of Job, how many have read it? How many read the book of Job? Okay, so you know the problem. What do you do when life just absolutely turns over on top of you? What happens when everything you thought was set goes away? He loses everything. Family, livelihood, home, health. It's gone. What do you do in a situation like that? It's just, and, and it's just crazy. 
And that you come to the book, like Dave said, and you're expecting answers, and there aren't. There aren't. What in the world do you do with this? Well, I just say right up front, I hate the book. I hate it. <laughs> I, I would tear it out, except I know God would whack me for doing that. It just, but it's, it, it is a super, super troubling book. But it just, as I've wrestled with that for decades now, I, I, I just say right up front, I don't have answers. But I've wrestled with it a lot. So we'll do that here a bit briefly today. So I just want to stick some propositions up here. So the first one here is this. His friends come and they presume the principle of the Lord's justice and conclude that he has sinned. It's pretty simple. Now, why did they do that? Well, you look at what's happened. There's a thing, Job 2.7, Satan afflicted Job with painful sores to the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Now, you look at that in light of Deuteronomy 28, and here's what it says. The Lord will strike you in the knees with legs, with grievous boils, which you cannot be healed from the soles of your feet to the crown of your head. Does that sound familiar? What his friends are doing is reading their Bible, Deuteronomy 28, the blessing and curse. They're looking at Job, they're applying scripture, and they're saying, well, it's simple. You're cursed of God. Change your ways and it'll all be good. Now, it's more complex than that, but that's the heart of it. They are simple biblicists. And simple is the wrong word. That's where it goes bad. Job comes and he says, he's still presuming God is just. And he concludes there's something wrong with the system. Because he knows he's not wrong. He knows that he is not sinful. And he is defending his ways all the way through. When the people are saying, you're a sinner, Job, just repent, it'll be okay. He says, I'm not. I'm not. And then what he does, he demands <clears throat> in this exquisite poetry, he is demanding, God, you've got to show up. You've got to explain what's going on. And you, most of all, you have to vindicate my honor because I have been shamed. I am carrying a load of shame in my culture that's overwhelming. God, and there's no answer. There is no answer at all. Silence. Silence. Except from the friends. And the longer the silence, the louder Job's agony. Because he is lamenting, he is screaming out his agony of loss of everything. And he's reacting strongly against the simple Bible guys. And his demands are very, very, very blatant. You've got to show up, God. You've got to explain. And you've got to restore my honor. I can't bear the shame. That's Job's thing. So what he does, God shows up. In a hurricane. Cat 5 tornado. Not the kindly, compassionate father. Oh, you're a good, good father, we sang before service. He does not show up the good, good father. He shows up as a storm that's going to tear everything up. And in four exquisite chapters of questions, I think what, Job, what God does is he shows that he has built a beautiful creation. Beautiful creation. And he built it. Not Job. God built it. 
And then secondly, and powerfully, I think, is he is saying that he is limiting the chaos. If you look at there, he puts boundary, he puts doors on the sea. And sea is that symbol of the raging chaos. It's a dangerous, evil thing. And what he's saying is he's putting limits on chaos. Now, the chaos, of course, that Job is experiencing does not look like it has any limits at all. But God is saying, no, I put limits on it. And among that chaos is the behemoth and Leviathan, and those strange monsters in chapters 40 and 41. And he's saying, I limit that. But it seems to me the heart of that poetry, the heart of that, those ongoing, never-ending questions is the third point, and that is this. He cares about. He cares about the earth. He cares about the skies and all the animals. At the beginning of chapter 39, I have come to love. Because God is there and he's saying, God, you know, you care about the goats in your corral because they're your goats. Who cares about the goats up on the mountains? Who cares about the deer? An exquisite poetic question. He said when the deer is pregnant and goes into labor and feels the agony of labor of delivering this little fawn and it squats, who's there? And the answer is, I am. And he even cares about the jackass. It's in the Bible. It calls it a wild donkey, but we know what it is. It's a jackass. See, and deer are kind of cute, kind of cute. Wild donkeys are not. God cares. Now, some read it, God orchestrates everything. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's caring about it. But he's absent. He's not caring about Job. And of course, that's part of the problem is, okay, I'm, am I not even up to a little deer up on the mountain kind of level? And that's the agony that Job is going through. Job's response in chapter 40 is, you win, God. I got nothing to say. Chapter 40. And God comes back to him, and he's there in his silence, with his hand over his mouth. He said, you stand up and talk like a man. I will not accept you being the victim. You don't get to be the observer. You don't get to play the victim. Now get up here and talk. You want to talk? I'm here. Get up and talk. See, and I hear a lot of piety. That's Job 40. Silence, God. You do whatever you want. You're God. I'm not. Now, that's true. But we don't get to play the victim before God. And a lot of the pieties that are preached are, sure, God, whatever you want. It's all you. Go for it. And see, that's not the piety that God's looking for. The piety he's looking for is the humble, yes, but the respectful, no, protest. God demands that he stand up and talk. And in chapter 42, Job says it differently. He says, you're God. In chapter 42, verse 5, the heart of it there is, my ears had heard you, which is say I'd read it in the Bible. Now my eyes have seen you. So he who has been declared absolutely righteous by God and by his own thing, but mostly by God, is saying, 
And what does it say? Therefore, I what? Oh, sorry, not yet, not yet. That wasn't a thumb, that was a finger. <laughs> what did he say at 42.6? I what? Despise myself. Now, here's the most righteous guy in the world, save Jesus, maybe. And the height of piety is to see yourself as despicable? Are you kidding me? The man that God says fears God's blameless, upright, shuns evil, the height of piety say, I despise myself? God wants me to see myself as despicable? Are you? I, I hate the verse. I hate the whole book, but I really hate this verse. Because I just can't believe that God wants us to see ourselves as despicable, though a lot of people say that. That we come before God, we come with absolutely no righteousness of our own, only the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. I think, you know, that's not what God is saying. So, one of the things I do when I read the Bible, it's close studying, is I read the Bible in different translations. This is NIV. And if you look at the ESV, another good translation, what does it say? <laughs> Wrong answer. What's the problem? It's in the Bible. Well, I normally look at these two. NIV is a more meaning for meaning. ESV is more a word for word. But I also look at... Another word-for-word translation, what does this say? Any difference between despise myself and retract? They're like, they must not be in the same Bible. Huh. Well, I also look at a Jewish translation. Tanakh, what does it say? Do you see anything there? <laughs> I recant and relent, not repent, but relent. Huh. So that's a meaning for meaning and a word for word and another word for word and a Jewish translation. The other thing I look at is a Catholic translation, New Jerusalem Bible. I what? Retract what I have said and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, something's going on. When good translations from different traditions have that much difference, something's going on. And that's why I read the Bible in close study in four different translations. Meaning for meaning, word for word, and use the NIV, ESV. I read it in a Jewish translation, if that's an Old Testament passage, and I read it in a Catholic translation. A New Jerusalem Bible or New American Bible or two. And then if you read a foreign language, read in a foreign language. I read Dutch, so I read it in Dutch. Dissertation. I mean, it's weird, of course. <laughs> and what you see is what's going on. Now, then what you can do, if you can read Hebrew, that's great. If you can't find a friend who can help you. And what you go back and look in the Hebrew, and the word despise there is kind of a complex word, and there's no object for it. So the NIV, NSV follow the Septuagint, I despise myself, it is in the despise, 
And what I think it's doing there is I retract or I despise what I said. And that's where several of them go, and I think that's where it's going at. So the best translation is the GEB translation. What's that? Gary Everett Brashear's translation. <laughs> what can I say? Therefore, what? I recant and relent, though still in dust and ashes. Now, it turns out that D.J.A. Kleins, who writes the article in the New Bible Commentary, which, by the way, if you're looking for a one-volume Bible commentary, it's absolutely the way to go. New Bible Commentary. It's edited by Dick France and Don Carson and guys like that. I mean, it's really good. And D.J.A. Kleins does the article on Job and it's really good. He takes the same view. And his thing is, I retract my demands. What are his demands? You got to show up. You got to restore my honor. I've seen you. I retract my demands. Though he's still scratching boils and his kids are still dead and his livelihood is still ruined. Nothing has been restored. Why is it that he can say, I withdraw my demands? I withdraw my angry words. And man, his stuff goes all over the place in his anger and lament and bitterness and pain and agony. Because he's seen God. So even though he's still in dust and ashes, still, his kids are still dead, he's still in agony over whatever these boils are, he can say it's enough. I don't need an explanation. And I don't need my honor restored, I can live with the shame. And what God does is restore his honor. The last of the chapter 42 is God lavishes honor, removes his shame and never answers. Never answers. Leviathan. I think the serpent is in Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword the fierce, great, sour sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, the coiling serpent. I think that serpent is the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. I think the Leviathan, it is a chaos monster in Canaanite mythology. That's true. But I think the chaos monster of Canaanite mythology is actually pointing to the serpent of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. And what does it say in Genesis chapter 3? Messiah says, I'm at war with you. I'm going to bruise your head. I'm going to stomp your head even as you're striking my heel and killing me. It's declaring war with a serpent. And I think this war actually precedes creation. I think God is at war with the gods, these powerful spiritual beings. And I think that's what's happening here. So John 8, who's this talking about in John 8? Who's it talking about? Talking about the devil. What does it say? He is a what? He's a what? Murderer from when? The What's the beginning? That's Genesis 1.1. At the time of Genesis 1.1, God created the heaven and the earth. Satan is already a murderer and a liar. Satan is already telling lies, destroying truth, and ruining what is good and beautiful. That war is already going on, I think. And I think Genesis 1, 1 creation is done in a war zone. 
And this war zone in 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon, good guy or bad guy? Solomon, good guy or bad guy? Like, read it. Okay. <laughs> good guy or bad guy? Mixed. Very mixed. Very mixed. 700 wives and 300 concubines in case those don't work out? I mean, weird. And what about these wives? They'll turn your, God, your heart to other gods. And you keep reading in the chapter... Astrid, the goddess of Sidonians. If I'm looking for a Sidonian today, where would I go? If I'm looking for a Sidonian today, where would I go? I'd go 13 miles south of Beirut, Lebanon, to the town of what? Sidon. Remember Tyre and Sidon? Who is the god of Sidon? Astrid. Who is the god of Ammonites? Amon, Jordan today. There are gods, powerful spiritual beings, hostile to God, trying to destroy everything he is good at, that people, they're stealing worship from God, stealing it from him. And people worship them. And all through scripture, there's this theme of the worship of other gods. And it's saying, don't do it. Because when you do it, you end up doing injustice too. And the two great sins of the whole Bible is worshiping other gods and doing injustice because that's what they're about. And God is at war with that. So Job is presuming the principle of God's justice includes something's wrong in the system. Remember what Dave showed you last time? This triangle between God's justice, Job's righteousness, and the retribution principle? He says something's wrong in the system. And I think what's wrong in the system, basically, that doesn't cover the detail. Because it includes Satan, the God's and the force, personal forces of evil. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about that tomorrow night when we talk about the whole stuff with theodicy. Just let me ask you a question from Job. There's a lot I could ask you. But here's the question. Job is not showing us the answer to suffering, the answer to evil. There isn't any. Evil is irrational. And you're looking for the why, I just promise you disappointment. It ain't going to work. It is not going to work. There is, there's no answer to the why question. Well, sometimes there is. Sometimes you sin. Somebody else sins and you bear the consequence. But for a lot of times, innocent people suffer. That's what the book of Job tells us. Do innocent people suffer? The answer is absolutely. doesn't mean everybody who's suffering is innocent, but innocent people do suffer. What Job tells us, I think, is how to suffer. And all the exquisite poetry, all the exquisite poetry is telling you how to suffer, just like the book of Psalms. And what did Job do? He screams out his agony. He accuses God of being an unjust, roaring lion, playing with me the way a cat plays with a mouse. Is that theologically true? Of course not. Job in his good days would not say that, but God in his agony does. Here's the key. Who does he say it to? To God. To God. And he didn't play the pious, oh God, whatever. Actually, he does at one point and God slaps him for it. What does he do? He screams out his feelings. Doubt, denial, despair, agony, faith, your good God. The whole thing. And see, here's the lesson. When you're in agony... 
we go searching for another God. And we do. Or you stay loyal to Yahweh, even when you don't understand what's going on. And I think that's the lesson of Job, to the extent there is a lesson, is where you go with your agony. And where you go with your agony is to God who is not there, or seems not to be there, and to your friends who will wrestle with you, even if they're really bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the question. When you're in agony, will you do a long Facebook rant against God? (laughs) Will you talk about God on Twitter feed or whatever? (laughs) Or will you agonize with the gracious, compassionate, slow slow to anger, faithful, loving, forgiving, does not like the wicked and that is the lesson of Job. Let's pray together. Father, I I confess to you I hate this book. <laughs> it's true. Because it's so painful. And we just come to you, Lord, and say how much we need you. Will you show up, whether it's in the soft, gentle spirit you showed up to Elijah, or you come in the roaring tornado. But Lord, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.